Welcome to Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience Podcast. Join Danny on a journey through the historical island of Ireland, its people and the wild Atlantic way, which is Ireland's last frontier. Experience the music and the culture that makes up the longest coastal driving route in the world. Now, please welcome your host, Danny Houlihan. Couldn't fall to Gleeshley on Atlantic Ian, as Valov win an own, win on the Shonana Kunde Kiri. Welcome to my show. This episode, I take a journey along the wild Atlantic Way, here on the Cliff Walk in Ballybunion, North Kerry Island. North of the Lady Strand in Ballybunion are the famous high cliffs and windy grassy walks, famed in poetry and its ancient illustrious past. A past steeped in lore and myth of Viking raids, its O'Connor chieftain and his daughters, and many exploits of his people and his culture. Its natural surroundings and ecosystems make up one of the most famous cliff walks on the island of Ireland and the Wild Atlantic Way route. This famous walk is visited every year by thousands of visitors. And it's a place I've taken my eco-track tours over the years as historian and guide. Its high, lofty cliffs have been marked by the passage of time. Its battered caves, fashioned by the actions of the mighty Wild Atlantic Way, where land and sea collide. This special place is one of many along the coastline, which is Ireland's last frontier, against the mighty Wild Atlantic Way waves, which beats down its mighty force on the southwest coast of Ireland. An area where once the old smuggler Musty and his fellow smugglers hid their ill-gotten goods in the high caves along the high rugged cliffs of Dune Ballybunion. All under the watchful eye of the seabirds, who in the past warned the old smuggler of the English military approaching his hideout, deep within the cliffs. Beyond far western looped twilight fades, and carry head in darkness shades, lit by the setting suns and silver beams, like opal seas, horizons, oceans gleams. Yet from this green's history, Bunyan's great rune of bygone age, unkept all memories of a king and a sage. Not often he remembered of so tragic tales, involving his nine daughters drowning whales, or even the virgin rocks at morning story, not half a page of Bally Bunyan's glory. Our walk starts at the old Castle Green, site of the old promontory fort of the Clan Conora. Its settlement and that of its mission are lost in the mists of time. Its high protective mound nearly gone now, a bandstand remains. Its underground passages are interwoven within its deep structure, a unique history which dates back to the early Christian period, medieval period, an Iron Age period. Several layers of human occupation were there, now forgotten. Today, the ruins of the famous Ballybunnan Castle stands on the edge of a decaying fort, defying time and anger of the high waves of the wild, rugged, wild Atlantic West Arms. The structure, which was built by the Fismaris' Lords of Kerry on the site of another castle of the Geraldine Bunions of West Limerick, 
stands out on the high promissory fort of Ballybunion. A sad reminder of the times when the local clans were suppressed and our native language and people were rectified and forced into immigration. All that remains of the lofty tower today is its east wall. Still defying time and tide, eventually the sea will claim the ruins and the memory of the Norman overlords. The green was in the past and is still a happy place for people to visit. A place for writers, poets and musicians. Its more famous musician was Thomas McCarthy. Thomas McCarthy was born in Dune in 1799 and died in 1904. Thomas McCarthy played his famous Ilum pipes on the Castle Green and entertained his guests who always paid him due recognition. When Thomas finished his daily performance on the Castle Green, he would walk the high cliffs of Dune back to his home, listening to the wildlife, then on the following day, returning to his spot on the famous Castle Green and played his haunting airs. Leaving the ancient ruin of Ballybunnan Castle, I followed the path to the beach below. This beach is known locally as the Lady's Strand. In bygone times, it was known as the Hidden Strand. In more recent times, segregation of the beaches were in place. Ladies to the ladies, men's to the men's side. This segregation was enforced by a local priest who sat on the side of the Castle Green, monitoring activities of the bathers. When a woman or man broke his beach rules, he would climb down from his lofty perch and run the offenders back to their respective beach. This daily event came to a sudden halt due to the priest getting a slap in the face with a wet towel on a Sunday afternoon from a lady who had made her way to the men's side of the beach. Thus the practice was ended forever. In front of me, rising to a great height, are the cliffs of Ballybunion, perforated by the famous cliffs of the town, noted by poets and writers for centuries. In 1834, William Ainsworth, geologist and writer, wrote of the Grand Cave in Ballybunion, quote, The last cave on the seaside, which has also an entrance from the bay, immediately curves round it, allows the sea to be seen, resting its foamy way with much impetuosity. Even on a calm day, up to two distinct apertures through which the light gleams with almost starlight brightness, unquote. It should be noted that it is advised not to enter this cave as over the years, time and tide has made it dangerous to explore. In 1842, the writer Alfred Tennyson, then a young man in the company of a friend from County Limerick, visited the caves of Ballybunion. Alfred Tennyson later penned these few words that reminded him of his visit to our famous caves. Quote, so dark a forethought rolled about his brain, as of a dull day in an ocean cave, the blind wave feeling round his lofty sea hall in silence." Unquote. I now leave the famous caves of Ballybunion, William Ainsworth and Alfred Tennyson. I continued towards the cliff walk, passing the last remaining seaweed bats, Collinses, which has over the last hundred years provide hot seaweed bats to our visitors. Daily seaweed bats are no longer with us, now a memory to all of us that remembered them.
As I stroll along the Glen Road, towards the steps that lead to the famous Cliff Walk, I pass the site of the famous Sunday's Well, known as Tuberi on Downing, the King of Sunday's Well. It was here during famous pattern days of the 15th of August. Prayers were said, and then after, lively songs and dances took place. Accompanied with large quantities of potting being handed out, sometimes ended in a full-scale riot, much to the anger of the local parish priest and the sergeant in the barracks at the time. I have covered this in another episode, so when you get a chance, check it out. Leaving the famous Sunday's Well and its merry history, I climbed the steps to the famous Cliff Walk. The panorama of the castle, the promontory fort and the town of Ballybonan is brought into full view. Below me is the Ladies' Beach, with its golden strand, stretches out towards the black rocks in the distance. The day is calm, with blue skies above me. A few gulls can be heard below me, nesting in the cliff face. What an experience. Butterflies are all around, and the smell of wildflowers is abounding, with daisies, buttercups, sea drift, releasing their heavenly smell along the famous stiff walk. The cliff walk is winding its way over the strand, with the breathtaking views of the Shannon Estuary and the wild Atlantic Way. The waves are beneath me. I can hear them crashing into the caves below without mercy. This area is known as the Point of the Abbey, which takes its name from an old abbey, which was once located in the area during the Christian period. Its location is now lost in time and that of its mission. As I round the edge of the cliff, I come to a large opening in the cliff face. This is known as Skuntnadrila, or the Druid's Lair. Tradition relates that during the turbulent history of the O'Connor chiefs and the Norman invaders, the end of the old traditions were on the horizon, the old customs were being wiped out, sacrificial worship to the gods were practiced in the area on the edge of the Skult. On May Day, as the dawn was breaking over Cunucunor Hill, a victim was sacrificed to the god Belnus. A chosen person from a clan was placed near the abyss near the Skult. The executioners, according to the story, commenced the pagan rite by delivering severe blows to the victim, rendering the person unconscious. When the rite was finished, the victim was pushed over the cliffs to the sea below. Thankfully, today in modern times, no rite like this is carried out in such a scenic area. Around the grassy cliff path I follow, with the waves beating against the rocks below me. Then in the distance, the massive blowhole or pit called the Nine Daughters Hole comes into my view. The sounds of the crashing waves below me sends my heart beating faster. The legend is just as impressive as the view. Around the year 800, the O'Connor chieftain, who was residing in the castle of Pukani at that time, had nine beautiful daughters. The legend goes on to relate that during the period, Vikings raided the estuary and the coastline along the Cashin estuary, which was once known as Cossan Kiri Lucra, or the pathway to the ancient kingdom of Kier. It was during one of these raids, nine Viking warriors moved inland in search of gold, but instead cut the eye of the chieftain's daughters and planned to elope. A 
clan spy reported back to the chieftain what was about to transpire. The king planned his evil revenge, luring his nine beautiful daughters to the pit. He related to his daughters that his golden turk had fallen into the pit. One by one, the daughters went to the verge of the pit in search of the turk, forming a human chain. Once the first daughter had entered the pit, the chieftain released all of his daughters into the watery pit, his evil deed committed to history. However, it has been said that he was a fair chieftain, and he brought all Viking leaders to the pit, beheading each and every one of them, and threw their remains in with the women. Indeed, a fair chieftain. Leaving the nine daughters hold behind me, I followed the gravel path, which winds its way onto another striking view of the Shannon Estuary and the Wild Atlantic Way. In the distance is Daniel's Rock, which takes its name, according to old historians, from the look Daniel, who would stay on the rock when the tide was out. There he would stay all day, until he would spot a British naval cutter in the estuary. Then he would alert the old smuggler Musty, who in turn would rise his ropes from above Smuggler's Cave and hide until the cutters and English had gone. Another legend associated with the area was the vision that would appear on the Shannon Estuary. The vision depicted a fair day in progress, smoke rising from the old houses and a tall wrong tower rising from the island. The old folks would say that anyone seeing this image would be dead shortly after but for my research, many survived to an old age, stating that they did see it and it was seen on the estuary. Others thought it was an optical mirage or snapshot of another place placed on the estuary during rare weather conditions. Its name was the vision of Kiel Stahin, or Kiel Sahin. As the vision disappears into our memory, I move along the cliffs to one of the most beautiful sites. The Virgin's Rock, or known in the past as the Sager Stand. This high lofty sea arch adorns the coastline of Dune, frequented by seabirds all year round. It was noted in the writings of Ainsworth in 1834, quote, Between the promontory and the north cliff of the cave headland is an immense pile of rock, tenanted by numerous gulls, which is perforated by a lofty sea arch easily passed through in a boat, and again, between it and the point of the promontory, a mass of rock is quarried, out with statutory boldness into an almost regular-sided figure, through which the waters have wrought a passage." Unquote. Right of the Virgin's Rock on the headland, one can see the remains in cross-section of the old Danish mound, promontory fort. All that remains of the old fort is a small piece of the bank and part of the fossa. It was related that the Danes built it way back in antiquity. Looking from the high cliff path above to the golden strand below, I can see the two stumps of the old sea stacks called the chimneys. These two huge sea stacks were reduced to rubble during the Second World War, when two mines had floated into one of the caves near the high cliffs of Dune. The army put sandbags around the mines and detonated them. The large explosions could be heard around the town. Windows in the nearby convent of Mercy were blown out, 
and sadly the two giant sea stacks fell beneath the scenic waters of Dune Bay. In the past history of Dune, tales are numerous about the sea of what transpired. This area has a deep murky past during the time of the smugglers. Tradition has been handed down from generation to generation that many caves in the area of Dune were used to secrete ill-gotten goods by smugglers. This area is pocked by caves which go deep under the headland where the cliff walk is today. The bay today is known as the Nun Strand. Leaving the scenic vista of the Nun Strand, the remains of an old tower is to my left, in the last stages of decay. As I cross its foundations, I rise to a height over a vaulted room. This is the ruins of Pukini Castle. Pukini Castle takes its name from the hood of the broken vaults. The tower rose to several stories high, convex to the land, its upper section constructed of wood. According to historians, the castle had upper wooden defences and a lower mound. This was common in Europe. The ruins, according to historians, was constructed during the reign of Mary, Queen of Scots. After this, its records were lost in time. Its name, Pukani, takes its name from the vault, which has been attributed to the Puka in myth and legend. The Castle of the Puka. In ancient times, the landscape surrounding the castle was the realm of the Puka. A deformed creature who crept up on its victims as they walked along the cliffs of Dune. The victim was seized by the Puka, who in turn carried the person or persons on a nightmarish journey around the high rocky cliffs of Dune. The victim would awake within the walls of Pukanee, terrified, until the person did three rounds of the castle in prayer, then the spell was broken. It is said that on May Eve, the shadowy spectre of the Puka still roams the cliffs of Dune in search of its next victim. So much for ghost stories and spectres. As I followed the grassy path along the Bay of Dune, I looked back at the stunning scenery, the Virgin's Rock standing proud over the bay, and the sounds of the crying gull lamenting its solitary existence, the long wave breaking against Paul Nabow, and the echoes of the waves in the long sea-hog caves. Below me is a flat rock, where once pictures were taken during the late 1800s of ladies in their finery and gentlemen with their top hats. This was known as the Hunter's Pat in 1834 from a tradition of a horse race that took place in the area. A rider had to take his horse over the arch. His top is missing now, due to erosion. The arch was less than three foot wide. Navigating this obstacle, the jockey had to climb the cliffs and complete the circuit in quick time. Again, another hidden part of this special heritage area. The thoughts of O'Connor and his nine daughters comes into mind as I leave the bay and the deep dark secrets of the old clan system and all mostly the smuggler. The shout from Daniel's Rock of a ship approaching and the old smuggler sitting in his dark cave counting his golden coins. Now long forgotten tales of the cliff walk. I hope you've enjoyed our journey along the historic cliffs of Dune. When you visit this area, leave no trace. Take nothing away from the natural environment but memories that will last with you forever. 
Thanks for listening to our show. Through its people, its heritage and its rugged coastline, this is truly Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. Bye for now.